Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 28, hear the inerrant and infallible word of Almighty God. Now it came to pass about eight days after these things that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened, as they were parting from him, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone, but they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. So far in the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you will bless this, the hearing of your word. We pray that as we reflect upon it, we would see Christ and hear that which he would have us to hear. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage says, eight days after these things, that reminds us we need to think about the context, doesn't it? What, what things? The, the things we've been considering the past two weeks. Previously, Christ had challenged his apostles. Who do you say that I am? You've been following me around. I mean, actions speak louder than words, we, we might say. So you would think that would be enough. But Christ says, no, I want you to, to tell me who you think that I am. And he draws a line in the sand. What, what do the people think? Do you agree with them? Or do you think something else? Peter gives the right answer. At that point, one of Peter's great high points, representing the rest of the apostles, you are the Christ, the Son of the Most High God. It's a good answer. But remember what Jesus immediately does. In saying, you're right, he says, but you're wrong about what that means. The Christ, the Messiah, what type of Messiah? Will I be the one that the Jews are expecting on a great white horse crushing Rome and setting up an earthly kingdom of David? No, I will be one who must, must suffer, must be betrayed by the leaders of Israel and must die before I then must rise again. I, I will be, in other words, a Messiah who must suffer before experiencing glory. 
And then as we saw last week, he adds something we might not like so much. If I am a Messiah who must suffer before glory, you disciples must be disciples who suffer before glory. If you would follow me, pick up your cross and follow me daily. A potentially very discouraging set of instructions. Notice what Luke does then. Having presented us with this, having presented us with Christ declaring himself to be the type of Messiah who will suffer, and by the way, he's going to do this again, not far from here, later on in this very uh, text, uh, uh, in this very chapter, that we're going to find in verse 44, him talking about his suffering again. And in verse 51, he sets his face towards Jerusalem for the suffering. And look what Luke puts right in the middle. What the Holy Spirit orchestrates right in the middle. What Christ shows three of his apostles right in between these two suffering passages. He shows them his glory. He shows them and he shows us a taste of the glory to come so that we might be encouraged and guided in the way of suffering now. I think it's important that three of the apostles are shown this, but verse 36 tells us they didn't say anything to the others. Just think about that for a moment. There were, I should do my math ahead of time, nine Nine other apostles who had no clue that this happened. Eight of them wouldn't find out about it until after the resurrection of Christ. Which tells us something. It tells us that what happened on that mountain was indeed as much for us as it was for the apostles. It was for Christians after the resurrection that the, the transfiguration took place. He did it so that afterward we might have this picture of what lies ahead for us. So as we think about this passage this morning, and I want to try to be brief looking at the event itself because I, I have a whole page of applications uh, and I, I want to try to get to them without keeping us here all day. Uh, but as we look at the event itself, we, we see the transfiguration of Christ himself. He takes his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, up on the mountain, uh, probably understood by the rest of the apostles. Usually when he goes up on a mountain, he's not coming back for a day or so or more. Uh, we've already seen that in the book to this point. And so they go up on this mountain and apparently when they get to the top, the apostles are drowsy and they go to take a nap. Maybe it's even drawing towards nighttime when they get to the top. And so they start sleeping and as they are slumbering or dozing off next to the fire, maybe Christ is transfigured. His face shines like the sun. Although, really, that's just a figure of speech, isn't it? Really, what we're shown here is that the sun 
shines like Christ. But we see the sun more. So we'll flip it just for our own understanding. Christ shines here like the sun and his clothes are transformed into dazzling white. Now, now if you read your prophets, you should, you should recognize Christ. If you had never read the Gospels before, but you were a Jew who had grown up with Ezekiel and Daniel especially, uh, you should recognize suddenly that Christ is the one who appeared in Ezekiel chapter 1 and other places. That he is the Son of Man, as he's been claiming all along, who ascends to the Ancient of Days in Daniel. Because this is the description that we're given by the prophets of old of Christ. In fact, I, I was reflecting if you only had uh, this description to go by, and you read that two of the prophets of the Old Testament appeared on the mountain with him, you might guess that those would be Ezekiel and Daniel. They're the ones that describe him this way. But that is, of course, not what we find. But not only Ezekiel and Daniel describe him in this way, but John will later see him like this again, and he'll describe him for us in Revelation chapter 1 and other places in that book with the dazzling white robes and the sunshine face. In December, we sang, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. And surely this is a moment where that veil is ripped away for a moment so that they could see a glimpse before it goes back over his face for another year prior to his resurrection. Well, the testimony of these things is declared by five human witnesses, isn't it? We have two from the Old Testament and three from the New. The three from the New being the first apostle to die, James, the last apostle to die, John, and Peter, because it's Peter. <laughs> Don't know what other explanation than that. Peter is always there. He's, he's, if the three were reduced down to one, it would be Peter, right? The, the special inner circle. In fact, after Christ is declared first to be resurrected, we have the inner circle reduced down to two, Peter and John. Those two who seem to have been the closest personal friends to Christ in this group. But James also is included here. And then in the Old Testament, we have, from the Old Testament, we have Moses and Elijah. And I want you to think about why those two figures. Why not Ezekiel and Daniel? Or why not King David? Or some other figure like that. There, there are a number of things. I'll, I'll start with the, the less obvious things, perhaps. Both of these men in the Old Testament were men who had a special task of deliverance. Uh, Moses had led Israel out of Egypt, and Elijah had sought to lead them away from Baal. In other words, they were two of the great Old Testament uh, Christs, 
right? The word Christ means anointed. So Messiah, if you put a lowercase m on it, these are two of the lowercase m Messiahs whose very existence pointed ahead to Christ himself. The one delivering from national slavery, the other from a spiritual slavery. And therefore, the Old Testament figures, perhaps who most pointed to Christ, are these two figures. For, at least for the Jews, they would be these two figures. There are also two men whose unusual departures from this world are well noted, aren't they? Moses went up on a mountain with God and we're told he died. Jude adds something to our inspired understanding of Moses' demise. And that is when he died on the mountain, Satan wanted to get a hold of his body for some reason. Uh, There are a lot of ideas behind what Jude is getting at there. What this mythology that Jude is saying by inspiration is true is getting at perhaps most likely of them, is that Satan wanted to get a hold of Moses' body to in some way uh, uh, possess it and to convince the people of lies. And so God sends an angel to guard the body of Moses. It's a strange demise, isn't it? It's not what we would expect. You know, Joshua dies and he is buried in the land. That's clean and simple and ordinary. But Moses... He dies on a mountain, mysteriously uh, away from everyone. No one saw it happen but God. And then there's something that went on afterwards. And Elijah, of course, we know, was taken up into heaven by a whirlwind after a fiery chariot had separated him from Elisha. And so uh, these two men both have very mysterious departures from the world. And, And that's significant for this moment because notice what they talk to Jesus about about his, it could literally be translated, about his exodus, which he was about to accomplish. About his departure, which he was about to accomplish. Some of your translations have departure there. Probably a better translation than decease, although that's actually accurate as well. There's nuance in the word, but, but exodus is the literal thing there. It just would sound a little weird in our English, wouldn't it? Two two Old Testament deliverers who departed in a strange fashion. And when they get here, they long to hear the first thing. Of all the things they could have asked, the glorious God with whom they had longed to meet. They want to know about his departure. What are you going to accomplish in deliverance? And how is that deliverance going to be accomplished? in your departure itself. These are also Old Testament uh, saints who uh, spoke to God on mountains, and so it shouldn't surprise us to find them on mountains speaking to God again. And of course Moses obviously wanted to see God's face on the mountain, and he was only given the backside glance. Elijah on the mountain longing to hear God speak and he was given a strange type of speech but now face to face he hears the voice and 
Of course, these are also the two for the Jews who represented the entirety of the prophetic office. Moses, the great, the great and first official prophet of Israel, the lawgiver, and Elijah, the prophet. We, we don't necessarily think of him because he doesn't have a book attached to his name. We don't tend to think of him as one of the great prophets, like Isaiah, because he's got a book, or Jeremiah's got a big old book. But Elijah, to the Jews, was the great prophet after Moses because for a number of reasons, one of which was he began the school of the prophets, which seems to have been like a, a seminary for uh, future prophets, future preachers. And so these are the two great who represent the entire Old Testament. Just like it's easy to see James, the first martyr of the of the New Testament age, the first apostle to die, and John, the last apostle to die. That makes sense why they would be witnesses to these events. Well, what they talk to Christ about, his departure, is a wonderful testimony that the Old Testament saints had the gospel. The gospel veiled, the gospel in shadows and types, And these men who had faith through the types and shadows and the veiled glory that God had given them in the past now get to see the Lamb of God. They get to see the sacrifice to atone for sin. They get to see the great high priest, the prophet they anticipated. They get to see their king in the flesh. And they want to talk to him about the cross and the empty tomb and the resurrection and the ascension to the right hand of the Father. The Old Testament saints testify aright to who Christ is. What about the other witnesses on the mountain? Those other three, they open their mouths as well. And of course, the voice of Peter representing them with their testimony on the mountain, and unfortunately their response is not as good. Jesus, don't let Elijah and Moses leave. It's good for us to be here. Remember the context. Remember Christ has just said, I must go to Jerusalem and die. And when you remember that that was the context just a week earlier of what Christ had been teaching them, and we'd be foolish to think he hasn't been bringing it up over and over throughout that week in between, because that's all he seems to talk about in Luke's gospel from the previous week until his death. And so we would be foolish to think he doesn't keep talking about his sufferings to his disciples in the week in between. And Peter's response when he sees Moses, Elijah, and Jesus on the mountain in the, in the glory of Jesus, it, his response is to say, isn't it better for us to be here than go to Jerusalem and suffer? We should stay here and build homes, start a community. If Jerusalem is going to betray you and kill you, Let's start a new Jerusalem here. Forget Mount Zion. 
the Mount of Transfiguration. Let's build tabernacles and dwell together here. And of course, the other problem with what he's saying is that he's making Christ, in essence, an equal to Moses and Elijah. Boy, it's great to have the three top, most important messianic figures together, isn't it? What a wonderful thing. Uh, We shouldn't mock these three apostles too much because when we talk about heaven, what are some of the questions that keep popping up for us? Uh, One of the top ones is, who do you first want to talk to when you get to heaven? And that's really all Peter's saying here is, wouldn't it be great to just stay here and get to talk to Moses, the law, and Elijah, the prophets, and Jesus, the, the Lamb of God? This is wonderful. And who of us wouldn't say, oh, that would, be a, that would be the dream. Wouldn't it be great to sit and talk to them? And one day, no doubt, we'll get to. But he brings it up here in a sense, to avoid the cross. We'll come back to that a little bit later. But two things happen in response to Peter and the other apostles' not-so-great witness here. First is that immediately a cloud covers them. Now, this isn't just ordinary, you're on top of a mountain and a cloud happens to come by. I went to college on Lookout Mountain, And it's February right now. I was looking this morning at the beautiful sunshine we have. I think, I don't think there was a single February day in the three years I lived on Lookout Mountain when I saw the sky. Because Lookout Mountain is a perpetual cloud during the month of February. Uh, One of the buildings there before the school was there was a, a hotel called Castle in the Clouds because it would be shrouded in clouds for most of January and all of February and sometimes part of March and other times of the year. But that's not what's going on here. It's not a cloud that just happens to come by. This is the Shekinah glory. This is that glorious pillar that led the Israelites in the wilderness, guided and guarded them. It's the glory that surrounded Mount Sinai that brought terror to the hearts of the Israelites. And indeed, Moses himself said, I am greatly afraid, as Hebrews informs us. This glory of God, in other words, they find themselves immediately in the presence of God. If these three apostles are thinking what a wonderful, happy little retreat this is, Suddenly, they are not at the foot of Mount Sinai, but on the slopes of it with Moses. And if ever someone should be humbled and their face driven into the dirt, that would be the place where it would happen. Just read the accounts from Exodus. Read the account as given very aggressively in Hebrews. And this is what they find themselves. So that Matthew tells us, that this, this glory left them trembling so much, their faces were, they were shoving their noses down into the dirt, and they wouldn't lift them up again until Jesus shook them on the shoulders and said, get up. They were terrified. The other thing that happened is that God spoke out of the cloud to them. God 
the Father. And here we have a short version of what he says. This is my beloved son, hear him. Uh, Other uh, accounts uh, include a little more about him being the the chosen one. Uh, But here we have this glorious, glorious revelation from the Father. This is my beloved son, hear him. And then the Father departs. No new Ten Commandments from the Father there through Moses, just the Son. God at various times and in various ways and times past spoke through the prophets, but now Hebrews begins through his Son, the heir of all things. And here Peter, James, and John, and we through them see the glory of this, that the terror of Sinai departs in a moment. Now hear the Son and be humbled before him. What what does the Mount of Transfiguration teach us? Uh, I mean, we could be here for hours with that question, couldn't we? If I was a Puritan, we'd have an eight-week series on just the application on this. And maybe that would be great, except I'm not that good of a preacher. So we'll, we'll stick with a few things this morning that, uh, that I believe that we are taught here at the Mount of Transfiguration. Again, verse 36 tells us that the apostles initially say nothing. It, it's not that they are afraid to or ashamed to, that they're trying to hide their blunder. Matthew actually informs us that having touched their shoulders as they grovel on the ground, Christ's first words to them are, get up. Do not be afraid, in essence. But then his follow-up is, tell no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So, them not telling the other apostles is them being obedient until Christ is risen. But again, that emphasizes to us that the point of the mountain is for we who are after the resurrection to have a glimpse of things to come, but also of things we need to know now. And one of those things, I believe, is Scripture. That that might sound weird, but the Mount of Transfiguration is given to us that we might learn something about Scripture and the voice of God. Now, I didn't come up with that. Peter came up with that. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter directly tells us about the Mount of Transfiguration. He does it briefly, as if we already have heard it many times from himself or others. But he does it in a very particular context. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, Peter talks about the need that you and I will have, the church today, For the scriptures written down after the apostles are gone. And then in verses 20 through 21, he'll tell us what scripture is. Not given at the whim of man or from the wisdom of man, but from the Holy Spirit inspiring. That is... 
these scriptures which we have are the word of God. And then notice what Peter does. He spends most of the rest of the epistle warning us about who we listen to. False teachers and their end. Now, it's in the context of this that he gives us just a few sentences about the Mount of Transfiguration. And he isn't giving us that to teach us something about the glory of Christ, which is what we would expect, but about the word of Christ and the authority of Christ, and specifically about hearing Christ. When you consider the context, and especially where he's going about false teachers, it's rather clear, I think, that Peter is saying, by recording the transfiguration here, he's saying that we need to shut our mouths and listen to the word of God, lest we fall for false teaching. And just consider the power of this. Because in one sense, Peter is saying, I am the example of falling for bad teaching. I was on the mountain. And who was it that opened his big mouth and said foolish things when he should have been listening to Christ? Me. Hear him. Because if you don't, chapter 2. False teachers have arisen. They've come. They're in the church. They will lead many astray. And your end, if you're led astray, will be the same as that of the false teachers themselves. That says something powerful about the scriptures, doesn't it? When we, as it were, stand on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter and gaze at the glorious Christ, he says the most important application you can draw is shut up and listen. And if you say, well, I'm I'm not on that mountain, Peter. That's not fair. I didn't get to be there. He says... Before I die, I write these things for you. Receive the word of God in his holy living word. Hear Christ. Hear. So according to Peter, that's the, that's the big application we're to draw from this passage. And I encourage you to go and read 2 Peter this week. It's short. It's three chapters. Half of you, I would say, probably don't have an excuse to set aside a time to read it in one sitting, which would be ideal. Some of you might have an excuse to not read it in one sitting. Do your best. Put the audio version on. Because that's when you see the power of what Peter is teaching here. 
It's a solemn book. But it's a book that precedes everything solemn with this. All you need to grow. All you need to grow. Because chapter 1 begins with growing. Right? Growing from knowledge to practice. All you need to grow in your Christian life is supplied in the word of God. Hear Christ. Well, secondly, of course, the Mount of Transfiguration teaches us something about Christ. But I think we could make it clearer than that. Christ and us, that union we have with him. It's one thing to see his glory. We saw his glory at Mount Sinai. And we tremble. But at the Mount of Transfiguration, we see his glory. And the New Testament would teach us to consider our union with him and our future with him. Consider John, one of the other witnesses that day. He doesn't give us the explicit Transfiguration passage. But have you read 1 John 1, 1 through 4. It's hard to think that the Apostle John, when reflecting on that which we have seen, we apostles, we have seen, we have heard, our hands have touched Christ. It's hard to think that John was only thinking of Christ in his humiliation, his veiled flesh. It's hard to think that John isn't also reflecting on the resurrected, glorified, transfigured Christ. And there he says to you, we have declared this Christ to you, the whole Christ, that with us your joy may be complete. That you might lack nothing. Dear friends, the Mount of Transfiguration shows us the Christ. And John says, I'm not the only one who is united to him. Just because I'm one of the few who touched him in the flesh. You too are in union with him. That your joy may be complete. The Apostle Paul was not on the mountain that day, but he saw the same glorified Christ. And one of the many comments he makes about our union with the glorified Christ is found in Romans 12, verse 2, where he tells us that as we hear Christ speaking to us in the Scriptures, we are transformed by the renewal of our mind. As the resurrected Christ speaks to us in his word and we receive it by faith, we are transformed as our minds are renewed from death to life. But it goes further than that. Because John, John's not done talking about the glorified Christ and you. It's not just that our minds are renewed, but in 1 John 3, 2, he declares to us, 
that when this glorified Christ returns, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. Not just a temporary shining. Not Mount Sinai. Not something veiled and it will fade away. But an eternal reflection of his presence forever. That's your future in Christ. In Christ he is what was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And in glory you will be a reflection of him forever. And then I think there's a third application to take from the Mount of Transfiguration as well. I think Dan Doriani gets at this very well in in one of his commentaries. He writes, The Father transfigured the Son, that we might know exactly who the Son is and how fully He deserves our worship. The Mount of Transfiguration teaches us something about worship as well, doesn't it? If He deserves our worship, if the Mount teaches us something about worship, what would it be? Surely, if nothing else, the Mount of Transfiguration teaches us about worship, that we ought to be less like early Peter with our worship and more like Job. Remember Job? Job 40, I place my hand over my mouth. So often our worship is us rushing in babbling without understanding. What happens when, when we seek to come up with worship on our own without kneeling before Christ and hearing him speak what he wants out of worship in Scripture? Well, among a lot of other things, when we do this, so often our worship ends up focusing on all the wrong things. People, places, and actions. I think Doug Sean O'Donnell, in one of his commentaries, phrases this so powerfully and well. Hear what he has to say here. Christians who revere holy places, like the unnamed mountain, holy people, Moses and Elijah, uh, and holy people like Moses and Elijah, more than they revere the holy Son of God, are wholly mistaken, if not idolatrous. Here on the Mount of Transfiguration, arguably, are the top six heroes of the Old and New Testaments in one place and one time. And yet God the Father acknowledges and honors Jesus exclusively. And then he rebukes Peter for the first building project in church history, wanting to build holy shrines for holy people in the Holy Land. Doing something seemingly good for Jesus can be very bad. If Peter had his way with his first two encyclicals, the first, 
concerning the avoidance of the cross, and the second, concerning tents to be pitched, we would not have a Christless Christianity, but a crossless one. But the gospel is Christ and him crucified. Doing something seemingly good for Jesus can be very bad for the church and the world. The world needs to hear the message of the cross. I think he's right with that quote. Peter on the mountain is the example of what happens when we approach worship recklessly, when we approach worship according to our wisdom, our emotions, and our ingenuity. And the end of the affair is, hear him. And so like Job, we ought to approach worship. And of course, I don't mean here, we shouldn't sing. That's better than when we sing, you whisper like this and don't really make too big of a noise. Of course, that's not what I mean. There are a few things more sad than, than singing that isn't really singing with joy. And we all ought to take that to heart as well. Sing a joyful noise to the Lord. Make a joyful noise. Certainly. We ought to confess with boldness and joy. But, but these are responses to his word, aren't they? They're responses to approaching worship humbly and silently seeking his desire in worship. Hear him. Place our hands over our mouths. Come to worship. Come to worship that is word-driven. We live in a day and age where we think of worship as all the stuff we do. And then the passive thing, when we hear the word read or preached, is, well, that's tacked on to what we call worship. But biblically, worship is the whole package deal, including receiving the preaching of the word. Hearing, preaching, listening, not letting our minds wander, which is so hard, not dozing off like the apostles, so hard, is an act of worship. In fact, from a biblical perspective, it appears to be the central part of our worship. Hearing Christ through his inspired word and hearing him, yes, even through fallible, frail, and sometimes wrong preachers. Hearing him, attending to him with reverence and awe, and then, yes, responding with joy and celebration. But that which is governed and directed and guided by hearing Christ, not rushing into a building project like Peter, but rushing in rushing in to hear and obey. Hear him. And then finally, very briefly, the transfiguration would have us receive assurance. This is very subtly shown to us in our text here. Jesus doesn't abandon his apostles. Isn't that assuring? They are such blunderers. 
They've just insulted him by making him equal with Elijah and Moses in their minds. They've just spoken when they should have shut up. They've just slept when they should have prayed. And now they grovel like dogs in the dirt. And they could have groveled there for weeks only to find Jesus gone. But they don't. When they lift up their heads, there he is alone. And this is very subtle. He's not shining anymore. He's the humiliation Jesus again. That is, he's still going to the cross to suffer for these dogs. Isn't that assuring? We blunder, sometimes in worship, sometimes in the rest of life. He does not abandon his own. But having loved his own in the world, he loved them to the end, to the cross, to the moment he said, it is finished. And he loves them beyond. It's even more explicit in how Matthew gives us the account of the transfiguration. There we find again that Christ tenderly touches their shoulders and his first words to them as they grovel in the dirt, Matthew 16, 7, and 8, Arise and do not be afraid. Arise. You're not at Mount Sinai anymore. Arise. By a better blood than Abel, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the holy God. Arise. And do not be afraid. That's the message for us as well. Be assured. The glorified Christ speaks. And he speaks good things for those who look to him. He speaks good things to us today as we come to the table as well. Let us hear him at the table and see him not by our own emotions, but let our emotions respond to hearing him say, this is my body broken for you. Do this.